welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. At this time, we're going to call our uh, speakers up to the podium to speak, and we're running a little late, and they've agreed to try to trim their speeches a little bit, but they were set for a time frame that makes it a little difficult to trim them too much. So we may be running just a little bit late this evening, but I think it's important to hear what they have to say. So we'll speed this up and uh, ask Harry B. join us. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry B. My name is Harry. I'm a sexaholic. I'm sexually sober since February 3rd, 1986. Expressing my gratitude to God and the fellowship for my recovery will take the rest of my life and beyond. Jess uh, promised he would help me with this talk if I volunteered to give one. And so I volunteered. And uh, he also said it might be good to prepare the talk and then give a trial run and see how it went. So I suggested that to Bernie. And so he agreed that I would give the trial talk to himself and the committee. And then they would decide whether I would speak or not. And, and for quite a while, it looked like or not. <laughs> and as it was delaying here, it looked, began to look like or not again. <laughs> but um, out of this, we uh, now have in Portland a monthly speakers meeting, a spiritual breakfast with featured speaking on the fourth Saturday of every month. Um, and, and so I'm, well, I'm happy to be, you know, accepted here to, to speak. As a preschooler, I made a fateful discovery. The climbing a rope gave breathtaking pleasure. And I did it every time. By the time I was eight, I was fully addicted to acting out by myself. And I found out, then I was informed, that masturbation was such a serious sin, it deserved the pain of hell. Six months later, I was in to peeping in the neighborhood and acting out. I tried to stop. The sexual pleasure was too great. I could not stop. Sexual fantasy, lust, 
Masturbation took over my life. I saw a woman preparing for bed. I was immediately hooked and have been a warrior ever since. I found pornography. I acted out with pictures of women. I feared, feared being alone with girls. For if anyone knew my thoughts and desires, they would reject me. I knew I was a sex fiend. By the time I was 20, my life was a chaos. Ever deeper sex with self, using pornography, animals, cross-dressing, voyeuring the daylight hours. Fantasizing the nights and consciously seeking sex in dreams. I dared not think of having a relationship, let alone of getting married and having a family. I called on the God of my childhood religion and received no help. I could not stop acting out. When I was 21, I made a big decision. I entered a 10-year program to become a religious vow to celibacy as a Catholic priest. That was not the sanest decision of my life. The first night in the seminary, I got drunk on mass wine. A month later, I picked up an ordinary magazine, lusted after the women pictures, and acted out. And my disease was back worse than ever. I did all the practices that religion said would lead to a better life. But I felt no improvement. My disease simply progressed. I was ordained and lived 30 years as a priest in a religious community. I've weared and masturbated many hours each day. I lived in pornography. I indulged my fetishism with women's clothing, always acting out alone. Then I began acting out with women. And my sexual behavior became known. I bore the stigma of attempted rape, improper behavior with young girls, multiple relationships with women, adultery, abusive sex, incest. I tried dumping my sex addiction on psychiatrists. I tried losing it in a mental hospital. Tried drowning it in alcohol, forgetting it in drugs. 
Nothing worked. I continued to act out. When I left the mental hospital in 1970, the only job I could get was working in an alcohol and drug center. And I wasn't clean and sober. But there I was introduced to the 12-step program. I was able to get control my alcoholism and drug addiction with the 12 steps in the AA program. I stopped at acting out with others, but I could not stop acting out with myself. One day in the, at work, I found in my mailbox separate copies of the essay brochure. I scored 17 out of 20 of those questions and decided to go to a meeting. And the, uh, in the meeting I witnessed the recovery miracle of sex, uh, sexaholics equally hooked and hopeless as I. And I came to trust, to believe that recovery, to believe in re their recovery and the God that helped them to re achieve it. I began to think there was hope, even for me. But just dumping my powerlessness and unmanageability on God and waiting for the sobriety was not enough. I continued to act out. <clears throat> Self-pity became my power greater until a member reminded me, Harry, we're going to continue to love you until you can learn to love yourself. For God really does love you. I knew I could never be forgiven by God or I felt I couldn't. And a sponsor informed me, poor Harry, is the only person in God's wide world that Almighty God cannot forgive. And I think my ego began to deflate a little. But I did, I did get sober. I made the decision to turn, well, I admitted my powerlessness, that was certain. And I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. The God that I knew now cared for me. I discovered a power greater than service. Opening the meeting room, arranging the chairs, making coffee cleaning up after the meetings, serving as group treasurer and secretary. I was chosen to serve on the less than popular advisory IGC 
and central office oversight committees. I discovered God in service. I always discover God when I turn from self to help others. I had good sponsors, spiritual men with God power, who feared to try trying to sponsor without God's help. Mostly I found my higher power in working the steps to sobriety and recovery. Repeating steps one, two, and three established sobriety. A gift I could bring to the meetings and share with others. In my sexual first step, in the fourth and fifth steps, I came to accept myself and allow others to see me as I really am. And I admitted that to God and to another and to, I say, and to myself, that I was worth something. Listing and surrendering my shortcomings in step six and seven allowed God to begin healing my defects of character, and they were a few. Those resentments had to be surrendered, for they had triggered much of my acting out. And in six and seven and eight, I made my list and made my amends, and they were many. I continued to take personal inventory, and when I was wrong, I admitted it, maybe not so promptly. I've also discovered I not only have to admit it, I have to admit it to the people involved. And with this, my sobriety, my better way of life, I became more comfortable talking to God, meditating, and praying. I say my life is a lot better. And I'm grateful to the program. Some, almost two years ago, the silver six years of sobriety, I forgot to pray only for God's will for me and the power to carry that out and started resisting the things that were happening to me, making my own decisions, putting off necessary tasks and fell into a very deep, <clears throat> very deep depression. I became fearful of going to the New York conference, fearful that I would get entangled in the sobriety definition discussion 
and disgrace myself. I was afraid to go to the Nashville conference where I might meet a niece that I had sexually abused and said she did not wish to see me anymore while she was in treatment. And I began to fear that I might be sued. But I kept most of this to myself. There were a lot of other things that happened. I thought I was losing my sight, hearing, voice, (laughs) that aging was coming very rapidly. I was afraid to spend money to go to the doctor. I might be criticized for wasting money. Because I knew what I was doing was self-caused. There were many other things that happened during that depression. And I went to the the Rochester conference. Mostly because my religious superior told me, I don't know what's bugging you, but you better do something about it. And at the conference, so many people greeted me and showed their love and concern. But I was simply lifted out of that depression and got back into working, you know, my program. I hadn't lost my sobriety. I still did, I still worked my program. I still sponsored people, even though I was depressed. Once or twice I even shared at a meeting what was happening. It wasn't very encouraging. Yeah, the newcomers remarked, boy, if sobriety isn't any better than Harry's, I don't know if I want so much of it. <laughs> but I did keep coming back. And I wanted to share that. That years of sobriety, years of recovery, simply in this program are not any guarantee that the character defects will not return in the old patterns. I'm going to steal a little time. My watch is telling me if I can find the proper button, I'll get that bzz, bzz to cut off. I always like to tell at least one story, and if some of you have heard this before, it's turning over things to God every day, and after a long period, I was back over at the coast, coast parish helping out one Sunday, you know, substituting as the priest for the ceremonies. And I was a little bit uptight, it had been a long time. And uh, sometimes I didn't do so well, but I got through the homily and was going through. I said, okay, God, I'm going to make it from here on. I know, you know, that's the part that they judge. Of course, I was all suited up and I had on that portable mic. (laughs) And I went down when we greet the people before the communion service. You know, and I'm popular at that, you know. And when I was coming back up to the altar, I tripped and said that S word. (laughs) But I want you to know I turned everything more over to God that morning. 
And when I got back in the sacristy after Mass, an old lady came up and said, Excuse me, Father, we couldn't hear you. I think you forgot to turn on your microphone. (laughs) I'm going to keep coming back. Thanks. Thank you very much, Harry. And now I'd like to introduce to you Jess L. from Bozeman, Montana. Thank you, Dennis. And thanks, Harry, for what a beautiful talk that was. Uh, we need, you know, good speakers, and so it's so neat to see what Harry's doing and uh, able to put it down uh, so beautifully as he laid it out. I'm just a very grateful sexaholic. This precious day of sexual sobriety adds up to 11 years, four months, and four days. My sobriety date, March 5th, 1983, is far and away the most important day in my life. It was the day of my rebirth. I've had other rebirth days in my life. I've had other uh, rebirth days in my life, but that's the most important one. March 5th was like a slap on a baby's butt. It woke me up out of a nightmare. And that slap fast started my progress towards the great dream and great vision I've always had. When I was 17, I went to our young Baptist minister and said, there's got to be something more. What is it? He didn't know. Now I have a pretty clear clear picture of what that something more is. So March 5th, 1983 will always be my biggest birthday because it put my feet on the path to you. And it put my feet on the path I had been seeking for 57 years. It headed me towards a half-shaped vision I had always had. Preparing this speech for you has given me a sharp jolt and made that vision so much more clearly. That The preparation has helped me look a lot further down the road. So my understanding of my own vision has grown so clearly. And I don't think you can really realize what a tremendous opportunity you give your speakers here because in the course of us speaking, we have a chance to go so deep into ourselves to find the things we need to say to you. But we are probably always the biggest beneficiary of the speech. So in my big news came to me March 5th, 1983. It was Kent saying to me from S.A., Jess, it is lust. It's what's in your head that's killing you. I had never known lust was my enemy, the force that kept me from realizing all the best of me. I thought lust was my friend. I knew it was my comforter. But on March 5th, it started to dawn on me that the lust drug 
was killing me and killing my life. Now I have the hope that I can pass on to you what has happened to me as I have stopped giving my attention to lust when it comes knocking on my door. With God's help, five minutes at a time, for about 4,000 days, I have not gone to the door and let lust in when it knocked. I see already now how ten years of turning lust away has slowed down lust coming to my door. But I still see lust knocking at the door with almost as much force as ever before. My beloved 12-year-old grandson now makes his home with us. He and his friend and, his, and my wife wanted me to go with them to see the great movie Forrest Gump. So we went Wednesday night. The movie is rated PG-13. There are two minor sex scenes in the movie, but those two scenes weren't minor to me. My sexaholism lifted those two scenes out of that movie, filed them away in my memory bank, and now wants to replay those two scenes over and over again the rest of my life. That experience showed me something I have long suspected. Sexaholism seems that it might be an allergy of the body, just like alcohol. Alcohol took my old sponsor, Vince, to the land of impossible dreams. Lust pictures and thoughts stored in my mind take me to the land of impossible dreams. I think we sexaholics are different in the way we react to pictures. A picture of a woman in long underwear in a catalog isn't a turn-on for very many men. But it's amazing to me how many men it is a turn-on for NSA. Because of our highly unusual reaction to visual sexual stimulation and fantasy, our body can be flooded by sex drugs just from a picture or thought that others totally miss. I have seen this in the movies my wife and son have told me it is safe to watch. If I go and find the movie, rather, I go and I find the movie drips with sex and they didn't see it. Later they will apologize to me because my being with them made them so much more aware of the sex scenes than they had been when they saw it themselves. We see so much sex out there, you and I, but a big part of that is our twisted perceptions and overreactions to sex pictures. My wife and son's business had an employee singing in Madam Butterfly, so we went to see her. I was an it was an innocent little opera to them, not to me. A young British naval officer in Japan takes in marriage a young geisha girl. As he is marrying her, he is thinking of a potential real marriage to his fiancée back home. And the story gets worse. But I'm sitting there with my eyes shut and my mind shut down as hard as I can make it until I can get out of there. At the end, I make my polite social statements. But I'm different from non-sexaholics. Things like this have helped me see that the sexaholic part of me stays the same, just as it does for the alcoholic. 
But I have experienced progressive victory over lust in another way. That is in the increased willingness I have not to entertain lust. When it knocks on the door, I don't go rushing to the door to let it in and entertain it. In the early days of this program, there was some regret and grief in me about having to turn lust off when life turned lust on. Now, I'm almost welcome the opportunity to turn lust off. Lust is in me, and lust is in my life. For me today, being lust-free means that I don't invite lust into my heart and entertain it and be absorbed in it. Now I willingly and speedily ask for help. God help me is my prayer. That prayer is so natural to me now that often I become aware that lust came to me and I instinctively reacted with the God help me prayer. So now there are times when my first awareness of lust being around is when I find myself already saying the lust prayer and asking that the lust be taken away. I now see two things about the prayer part of this program. One, prayer always works. Lust cannot penetrate me unless I give it my undivided attention. I find I can be praying that the lust will be removed and still see lust lingering in the background. But because I'm not giving lust my undivided attention, it can't harm me by turning on all my internal lust drugs. And two, I saw that lust would still be there after some time of praying in the early days. So then I found I needed to keep on praying the Our Father over and over again. So my second big discovery was that I could always pray longer than my luster would last. So my, true truth, my two truths on lust are these. If I ask God, God takes lust away. Two, no matter how big and long the lust attack, I can pray longer than I can lust if I have the willingness. I'm a sexaholic, so lust will always be knocking on my door. And I now have a choice. I don't need to let lust into my house, my head, my heart. I can pray lust away. As long as I keep praying lust away and don't entertain it, I'm lust free. Now I know that lust coming to my door, now I know that lust coming to my door and knocking is what makes me a sexaholic. That's God's business. But me going to the door and letting lust in and entertaining lust, that's my business. So being lust free means I don't ask lust to come into my house and entertain it. You told me my lust was my problem. I came to you and you showed me how to stop lusting. I did what you said and it worked. Just 30 days after being lust free, my son and daughter, who were alcoholism counselors, said to me, Dad, you're different. And I was different. Each year in this program, being lust free has brought me new benefits. I'm now coming to see a miracle. This sex pervert, this dirty, rotten wife stealer and wife seducer, started on a trip 11 years ago to the land of the lust free. I'm among you now and every day with God, with you, with God's grace, 
I get to that land and I'm there one day at a time. But the amazing discovery I'm making in this land of lust is that the land, rather, the amazing discovery I'm making is that this land of lust free is a twin. What's it a twin of? One name for it, for the twin, is paradise. As I told you at Nashville and at the Unity Conference in L.A., I started out to avoid dirty old lust and found I was also bound for the greatest spiritual place there is. Now I see all I have to do is to accept my addiction, my brokenness, my weakness, and right away I'm in heaven. It's not a fixed state for me by any means, but there are already periods when the joy wells up and so deep I swim for a little bit in the ocean of bliss and it's no big thing. And it's no big thing when some moments later I'm being very limited, very frightened, or very frustrated. No problem. The conveyor belt of life keeps moving by and I need to keep my eyes on it, living every moment of life. So what is it, so what is so startling to me is where this path that we are on leads us. We are heading for the promises of the AA Big Book. The land of the promises is the same land that the other great spiritual programs are headed for. The land of the promises, those promises we read regularly, that land is the same land that the other great spiritual programs are headed for. So here I am, a seeming victim of the worst curse that could befall a person, sexual addiction, yet here I am gradually waking up to find that all of my awful addiction was just a gentle reminder from God that I was totally powerless. Unless I sought help from a higher power than me, I was like a truck stuck in the mud, powerless, spinning my wheels. Finally, on March 5th, 11 years ago, I called on the big tow truck in the sky and got the help I sought. The old alchemists were looking for a way to change lead into gold. But here we are, but here we end up with something better. I was the worst kind of human garbage. And here God and you, who are my gods with skin on, are helping me do what the, alchem- what the alchemists said could- they couldn't do. As I come to you and your program over and over again, you're helping me turn human garbage into gold. Maybe that sounds a little too poetic for your taste, and maybe it sounds too spiritual. But there isn't any such thing as too spiritual when we look at the 12 steps. There isn't anything more spiritual. There's nothing, no way anything can be more spiritual than those 12 steps and the serenity prayer. As old Chuck said, old Chuck said it best. He said, he said, he said, he said that some thought he was being too spiritual. But how can something be more spiritual than this program, the 12 steps? At first I couldn't hear what I was saying when I said that prayer, that serenity prayer and those 12 steps. My old sponsor in another 12-step program 
25 years ago said it so well. His picture window looked out on a stunning mountain view outside of Bozeman. He pointed to it and said, just no landscape gardener ever figured that one out. But he said, when first I moved into this house, that picture window could have been painted black for all I could have seen out of it. And that's how it is for all of us. We can't see until we can see. We can't hear until we can hear. We have to hear that serenity prayer and those 12 steps read over and over again. I've been to two or three thousand meetings hearing those steps. They are starting to sink in. But most important, I have to be in the safe haven of your fellowship. I have to have the lifelong monitoring and support of your love for me. I have to be in the daily presence of you and your ideas. I have to open my life to you on the phone, at meetings, and at conferences. Thanks to the three meetings we have in Bozeman, and thanks to all of you who call so often, I don't think there's a day goes by anymore that I don't talk to or have my heart open, go to someone in this program. What I see as so powerful about this program is that it is totally a program of action. Those two spiritual giants, Chuck and Clancy, have both clearly told us how we should use these steps. First, we work the first nine steps with a sponsor as fast and as well as we can. Then we turn to the last three steps and spend the rest of our lives working them. There is no way we can work a step perfectly. So they don't want us going back and back over a step until we get it right. They want us to use step 10, 11, and 12 to work out all the continuing problems in life and in the steps. We can continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And promptly to me means right now or as fast as I can see the mistake and not wait until an evening meditation. I admit it to God and then put it, put it down. And the same for successes. I need to thank God for them so I can recognize where they come from, then put them down right now. This way the decks are constantly cleared for daily living. Nowhere is that daily living more clear to me than at these conferences. In the earliest conferences, I had to fight that part of me that wanted to go to the women and instead go to the men. Now that part is no problem to me. Now I have so many deep friendships with the men here, I'm instantly drawn to them. So now I can love you all as well as I'm able. I'm able, uh, many of you are friends that I haven't met yet, but that will soon take care of itself. So now I move freely among you, looking for those of you who want to be part of my life right now and letting God guide me in my walk and listening to what each of you have for me and what I need from you. The other place I live this program most intensely is, in my, is with my wife. We just celebrated Thursday 45 years of marriage.
20 of those years were me living my addiction and then living my recovery for 11 plus years. I've been making living amends to my wife. I've been as much help to her as I could possibly be. So she could be free to do what she had always wanted and to help her have the things she always wanted. In that process, two years ago, I heard the strangest words ever heard by a husband. For some years, I did what I was asked to do as fast as I could. One morning, my wife was telling me she needed a new shelf in her closet. But please, don't run and do it right now. Any of the next few days will be soon enough. I now see my living amends to my wife and grown children in a new light. It comes from an old spiritual story I love. About a thousand years ago, in a small Chinese village, a young woman became pregnant. Her parents were merchants. They pressed her for who it was that got her pregnant. She named the young spiritual teacher who had recently come to their village. The parents went to the teacher and told him, It is an awful thing that you have done to our daughter. We will tell the others in the village and you will be disgraced. He looked at them and quietly said, I see. Months later, the merchant and his wife took the newborn baby to the young spiritual teacher and told him, here is, the, here is the baby. You must take care of it. He took the baby and quietly said, I see. Some months later, the daughter relented and confessed to the parents that it was their neighbor's son who had gotten her pregnant. So the parents went to the young spiritual teacher and told him, we are sorry, we have wronged you. We will take the baby back. So he handed them the baby and quietly said, I see. I tell that story often to the people who call me to help with their problems. And I say I see a lot in my own life. But recently I urged a sponsee to say I see more, frequent, more frequently. When I was a writing teacher, I would bequeath my freshman uh, students a million periods to use in revising and improving their writing. So I told this guy, I bequeath you a million ICs. Please use them up as fast as you can. Later that day, I saw, saw I needed to take my own advice. So in my marriage and family life, I will spend the next ten years one day at a time with God's help and your help using up my 10 million ICs that I bequeath to myself. What's more, I will What's more, I will do another amend. During that time, I will listen to my wife and agree with her. Only in a very rare case will I ever disagree with her. And there will have to be a very clear and urgent present danger before that will happen. What am I trying to be? Some henpecked wonder? No, henpecked husbands say yes out of fear. I'm saying I see and agreeing for a very different reason. First, I owe my wife a lifetime amend. But even more important, 
my self-will and ego needs to be whittled down. And I can't think of any better place to start than at home. Bill Wilson says in the big book that we need an ego deflation at depth. What kind of big ego does it take to be the kind of person to try to steal another man's wife over and over again? And to do that even in the sacredness of another 12-step program. And worst of all, in doing that, to inflict the deepest hurt on my wife that it is possible to inflict in a marriage. So that monstrous big ego obviously needs plenty of deflation. It's like trying to get all the air out of one of those huge rubber tires on a big caterpillar earth mover. I came to this understanding from the service part of the program. For many years in another 12-step program than this one, I thought service meant working just in the program. Over recent years, I have come to see service in a much wider sense. I spent years listening to the set of six tapes of Chuck see from which a new pair of glasses was taken. Not too many years ago, I finally heard the words that Chuck chose as a title for this set of tapes. The tapes are titled, In All of Our Affairs. Chuck uh, Chuck's point is that we spend our lives in service by practicing these principles in all of our affairs. That means we live this program in our homes, in our families, in our work, and in our community. So service is picking up paper off the counter in the post office and putting it in the waste paper basket. Service is giving the right away to someone who wants it badly when doing so doesn't slow up the people behind us. Service is walking down a narrow aisle in the store so carefully and smoothly that it is easy for anyone to pass us. I see now that when I do service and no one knows of it, it breaks down the ego and lets some air out of that big tire. So service deflates the ego and self-will that got so hyperinflated from all that attention we gave it in our addiction. So I need to make these amends to my wife so quietly and unobtrusively that she doesn't notice what I'm doing. Anytime she gives me credit for something done, something I've done, it doesn't work for me because it doesn't cut down those egos because Jesse Goodboy has already got credit. I've come to see that living with my sexual addiction is like living with a 300-pound man-eating gorilla. I can be completely safe with that gorilla if I practice this program that in its short form says, I can't, God can, so let him. All I need is an acute awareness of my powerlessness. The instant the gorilla shows up, I call for help.
my son was here with me last night in the first part of this morning, and he was puzzled somewhat by the sexual addiction. And he's, he'd been in another program, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, Dad, it's been years since I wanted to drink. And I said, well, our program is different than AA. I said, because we have to live in society, we find alcohol in our mouths, and we have to spit it out. And he was kind of struck by that. He said, yeah, I see. Yeah, that would be hard. And a good example of I see of it I see is in Phoenix, where there's been an SA program there for 12 years, and yet there's only a couple of people with long-term sobriety for all that 12 years. I've never heard of anything like that happening with AA. And so that there is something harder about this program. That's not to be feel sorry for myself or any of us. It's a it it. But to me, it is a difference. This magical land I'm describing is not some special place that only me or only a few have seen. I see people here who are there too. They just don't know it yet. If I took, if I ask them how they are doing, they say pretty well. I ask what troubles they are having and they tell me, uh, what raving sexaholics they are and how hard it is for them to put it down. What I'm saying here is that's it. That's paradise. Paradise isn't not having problems and not go, doing wrong. Paradise is being comfortable with our humanity and the fact that there is no human problem we can face that we can't solve with our 12 steps and with our willingness and with this fellowship. All of the great spiritual teachers have been weak and finally got tough. Or they didn't, or finally got to where they didn't let, okay, all the great spiritual teachers have been very weak, but then they, they saw that with God's help they had all the power they needed. So there isn't anything to me better than that. And there are many people here who are in that position today who know they're powerless over lust and are instantly ready to call for help. And to me, that's all there is. The rest is is just a continuation of that. Our own Bill W. in the 12 Steps faced two terrors. One was his recurring bouts of depression. Two was the fact he was taking royalties on the big book, uh, where only the non-alcoholic board knew about it. And furthermore, a part of those royalties went to his mistress, a woman in the AA office. And that's not to scandalize Bill. That's simply to me to make the point that he, he was a human being and he didn't let his humanity keep him from being probably one of the greatest uh, spiritual innovators of our times. I think we all are perfect in that we are perfectly human. So we are as perfect as we can be, and we are perfect as we recognize our powerlessness and go for help instantly where we need it. 
We pull the weeds, but God makes the crops grow. I think it's very hard for us to to see that distinction between that. It's like the story of the lady that pulled up beside this beautiful farm and the farmer was standing there and she said, man, you've got a beautiful farm. God has sure been kind to you, hasn't he? And he said, yeah, God has sure been kind to me, but you should have seen this place when God had it all by himself. So we can't make the crops grow, but God can't pull the weeds. I see a big group of people in the 12-step programs who I never hear talk about doing any work, where I never hear them talk about God doing any work for them. These people tell about the work they are doing on themselves, but they have very little awareness of the fact that this is a totally spiritual program. And like I say, the shortest form of the 12 steps is I can't, God can, so let him. And yet a bunch of people in this program and in AA and other things are driving people in these 12-step programs nuts because their talk is almost totally focused on what, on how they are going about doing all of the work or doing, they and their therapist are doing all the work and you never hear a single word of God. And people are wondering what they can do about this and the answer is very simple, is the answer is nothing. Because we have to just wait. Because our program says we will listen to anybody. But my old sponsor spent five years in this program doing the just the first and the twelfth step. You know, the old two-stepper. It wasn't until he was Vince was five years into sobriety that he said, I want long-term sobriety. What does it take? And the twelve apostles told him, Vince, you got to get the God part. Well, Jesse said, I went out and started getting the God part. And the further along I've gone, I've found that there ain't no other part. So it's like the woman uh, in the kimono. Uh, uh, two spiritual men were walking down a muddy village in China about a thousand years ago. And there was a woman in a beautiful kimono, obviously wanting to get across to the other side. And so one monk went and picked her up and carried her across the street and set her down on the other side. And they walked on in silence for about an hour. And finally, the second monk said, say, say about that beautiful woman. We monks aren't supposed to go near beautiful women, say nothing, to pick one up and carry her across the street. And the first monk said, are you still carrying her? He said, I put her down in the marketplace an hour ago. And to me, that is the other part of this program is the speed with which we put things down. I had a beautiful chance to practice that day before yesterday when they told me that I had just lost the vision in my left eye. Uh, the vein, the main vein in the retina uh, clogged and uh, so the whole uh, artery system blew up and uh, it's just all red and I can't see anything. And the eye doctor said there's nothing we can do and he gave me a book on how to see out of one eye. How to live life with just one eye. So uh, a friend of ours heard about it later on in the evening, uh, the wife of a friend of mine, and she called and said, how are you doing with this, Jess? Well, I said, I'm studying that book. And she said, well, I, that's kind of what I expect of you. And it's to me, it is that thing that we learn here, which is, yeah, we can come here and whine a lot, but people get tired of it awful quick. And uh, all we're perpetuating for the problem for is, primarily ourselves, and so to me, we have to 
have to be able to put these things down. That doesn't mean we can't take action. I got a second opinion the next morning, and the guy said there might be some things that, that can be done. So we need to wait a few weeks, and it could heal itself, but until the swelling goes down. So I have to do what I have to do as fast as I can and then put it down and not obsess. Because of uh, uh, the consequences of heart surgery some time ago, I'm not able to uh, look at you and talk. I have to write things out and I know that's awkward. It's awkward for me and I'm sure it's somewhat awkward for you, but that's the best way I can do it. And I don't know whether what I've had to say makes much sense to you, but it sure has been a big help to me and uh, I appreciate the chance that you've given me of putting it out there and I want to say that I can more than ever before say that I now love you all because I know who you are even if you don't so thank you very much I love you goodbye I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.